Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. I know certain people are already thinking, that doesn't sound like Nate saying that. Nobody else is allowed to welcome me to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, Nate couldn't be here this morning. Uh, but in lieu of Nate, you guys get Justin Schwinn, the Schwinn Daddy. Uh, those of you that are virtual meeting people might get to hang out with him on a number of virtual meetings. How are you doing, Justin? I'm good, man. Good, beautiful uh, Wednesday morning here on the Air Force Base of New Mexico. In Albuquerque, New Mexico. Ah, uh, you know what? Good, good for you. I was going to make New Mexico comments, but who am I to say that? I haven't spent that much time there. It's probably awesome. Uh, uh, at least you're coming of. up towards fall, so temperatures starting to come back to off the the surface of the sun. Yeah, and if you do come to New Mexico, especially Albuquerque, make sure that you have an alarm system for your car because uh, if you leave it alone for five minutes, it might be gone. So that's one thing we do know about Albuquerque. That well, breaking for, bad. For Pete's sake, I was trying to be nice about New Mexico, and now you're saying <laughs> if you come here, you're likely to get your your vehicle stolen. I don't know what's <laughs> happening there. Oh, anyways, hey, I, we can't spend too much time opening this up because we had a mm -hmm. great conversation with our guest today that we were in no hurry to be done with. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you a question. Because yep. here you are, you've been doing these virtual meetings now for how long? Uh, going on uh, five years. Five? I didn't even know even. It's, it's been that long? Five years, 2017. Crazy. It really doesn't seem like that long ago when we were trying to work that out. So in that time, you went from attending to leading these meetings. And I am curious that in the last couple of years that you've got to help lead and get to know these guys, what has been the biggest aha or change in what you've learned about community, even when it's virtual? Uh, the, be honest with you, the meeting after the meeting and providing that space. Um, I think that's where the real relationships happen. Um, and, and really making that investment in those, those relationships. Cause you just, in the meetings itself, you just start to kind of really scratch the surface. Um, and the more you spend outside really walking together in your path, uh, the more you provide that opportunity to, when you get to those meetings, uh, you go right in. Um, you're not holding back. You don't have that that wall or that that crust on the, or the outer shell on that uh, M and M, as I always say. You crust right on the, the M and M. <laughs> you go right to the chocolate. Well, so for those of you that haven't been a part of meetings or virtual meetings, Samson is really a, a three pronged fork. There's a meeting that is structured. It is an hour. It is a place to start to learn to speak honestly with other men mm -hmm. and to do that uh, without fear of judgment from others, without fear of crosstalk that somebody's going to correct you or fix mm -hmm. what you're saying or mm, interrupt the process to just pray for you. Yep, yep. This is just your time to talk. The meeting after the meeting is the second part of the meeting. And that's where you just sit around and you get a chance to just talk about what's happening in your life that's maybe not deep or on topic, or if some person in your meeting has said something that you want to follow up a little bit more. How are you doing with that? Or what's what's going on beneath the surface? You can have a private conversation where you're not interrupting their time to share, which is huge. So that's the meeting after the meeting. And the third part is having a Silas, somebody that you are in contact with every day talking about what you're doing and what you're thinking and what you're feeling and what you're thinking of doing just a chance to check in with yourself and another man. And that's a person that gets to hear your whole story. Mm. Those are the three things that really make a Samson experience, but mm. virtual meetings, sometimes folks don't realize they can have a meeting after the meeting by just sticking around a little longer if they can. And so when did you start doing that? Uh, really two years ago, uh, uh, guys in the chat, in the virtual meetings, in the chat to the side, guys can leave comments and such. And guys started asking, hey, I got questions. Can I ask after? Um, and that went from a just asking a question to, hey, we're going to stick around for 20 extra minutes and we're going to kind of dissect more of what the topic was or, hey, this I felt differently about this. And I just wanted to share how how I felt or I had an epiphany after 
I got out of my breakout room. Uh, so about two years ago, we started to do that. And then guys started to say, hey, how do we take that 15, 20 minutes after? And how do we can we take it to the week? And that's when Marco Polo was in, in, introduced um, and Slack was introduced. And we, we created our own Slack channel. And guys have further conversations uh, from that. If it's one-on-ones, if it's breakouts from there, or if it's to the whole group. And, and it's, it's really strengthened us as a whole uh, for our specific meeting. And really, to be honest with you, encourage those guys in that specific meeting to go start their own meetings, which ultimately is really the purpose. It's to it's it's for that prosperity to happen. You got to multiply, and and I think that's the beauty of it. And I remember the first year that that Thursday night group all showed up to the Eva Tennessee. I mean, it might not have been the whole group. It was a big group of guys that showed up at Eva Tennessee, and you guys were so fun to watch. The joy of connecting in person. Mm-hmm. And then to watch how incredibly intimate your relationships are because you're using these things like Marco Polo and Slack, you're just in touch with each other's lives, even though you live all over the country. It's so cool. And, and I think John Blinks said once, one of the guys been Samson for quite some time, he said the difference between, and I'm in an in-person Samson meeting too, so I don't want to take anything away from an in-person, but the difference between an in-person and virtual Samson meeting is in person, you just have to literally drive there and show up. You have to make an effort um, in a virtual meeting to get there, meaning you have to find a device to be able to sit there to make sure that you're in a place, hopefully, of safety. And it's 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 more of a challenge. It's more of a throw of the dice that am I doing this? Is this really going to make because I'm not seeing these people in person? And then when you get there, you feel like also because there's not that in-person piece because necessarily they might not be in the same town you're in that. I might be able to share a little bit more. And then you see the depth of that, that roots really start to go in deeper and deeper in that soil. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. It, it is interesting how they both have some of the strengths of one might be the weakness of the other. Like mm-hmm. even what you described, some guys need people in their town to have that mm-hmm. personal relationship with, but we were surprised because that was a big question when we talked about starting virtual meetings, is this really going to feel like real relationships. Heck, especially for those of us who have had, uh, the internet has been all kinds of not real relationship, (laughs) false intimacy. And then all of a sudden we're like, Hey, let's use that exact same technology to have real intimacy. Eh, We weren't necessarily sold at first, but how quickly we realized, geez, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. So just want to encourage you. If you've never checked out a virtual meeting, go to, was it samsonsociety.com? Yep. And you can sign up, go to a newcomers meeting and someone will walk you through it. It might be Tom Mocha. It might be Nate. It might be, do, do you do newcomers meetings as well, Justin? No, no. Okay. There's Ed, Ed, Eddie Moore is another guy that usually will do it. So it's usually yeah. those three. So uh, go to one, check it out. I, I know if I'm not doing podcasts, I'm trying to squeeze at least one of those in as a break to strain my day that mm-hmm. I think, yeah. I can take a lunch and I'll sit with a bunch of guys and just talk. And it's awesome. There are multiple meetings every day of the week. Well, let us move on. Let us get to our guest. We have the son of a guest that was on just a few weeks ago. And it is great. So stay tuned for Row Hunter here on the Higher Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, we are going to have fun today. We have Roe with us. Roe Hunter, his father was on, what, six or seven episodes ago? Roe is a licensed counselor, a certified sex addiction therapist, a certified multiple addiction therapist. But beyond that, the weirdness, and I mean weird in a good way, weird is good to me, is that he gets to do ministry and intensives with his family, and that comes with a good story. So, Ro, welcome to the podcast. Oh, oh thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And love ooh, being ooh, here. Hooray! Ooh. Yes! <laughs> yeah. Love the also, I'm trying, man. I'm, I'm trying to bring it. Also, you're going to be in Eva, Tennessee <laughs> with right. your family. So, if you uh, are coming, you will get to meet Ro in person. But, Ro, 
give us this story. I mean, your dad gave the story. And so of his journey, I want to hear this from the son's perspective. Oh man, you get the the other side of it. Yeah. I think you just described it pretty well as weird. I would say that it has been a weird journey and I, I love weird. I feel like I'm a little weird too, in terms of life in general. And so to grow up with weird parents and weird recovery in a weird culture and a weird religion. <laughs> it's pretty, I love it. You know, I, I, it just feels so normal to me. Uh, but as far as, you know, growing up with my mom and dad, I, I'll say this too, like by, by no means are, you know, would I like to present us as like this perfect model of recovery people? I mean, that that's kind of the journey of recovery and it, it is a wild map of that or a wild journey on a map well, that, oftentimes feels like it has no destination. I, I don't, just, I don't even it, know what that means, but I do know that your dad was very clear that you should never go to a therapist who hasn't done their own work, which means 100%, there is yeah. no person in your position that didn't come from something. Uh, yeah, so that's right. Yeah, we're not expecting yeah, but perfect I, recovery people. Oh, no, no, I absolutely not. And I, I think, you know, for, for me growing up with my parents, I mean, they, they, they're not, he wasn't lying when they said that, you know, they, they've been in recovery for probably 40 years now, if not longer. And uh, it's funny to think back of my childhood because most kids that, you know, they, they have a drug problem, right? My dad likes to make this joke all the time. Um, and he says that we, our drug problem is that we were drugged to church, you know, nonstop, uh, mm. like six days a week or whatever. And my response to that was more of like, yeah, we kind of were, but it's more like we were, we, eventually we got drugged to like recovery, you know, like <laughs> didn't have a choice in that either. And, uh, it's funny to think back, uh, of my story and just finding out where we're, where we are today. I mean, just to give everybody the, uh, what we do, we, we have, um, own and operate LifeWorks Counseling in Madison, Mississippi. And uh, we probably have about, we have three offices now, I think, one in Starkville, one in South Haven. Um, and then I think we're trying to open up another one in South Haven too. And so we're, you know, we're, and then the one here in Madison. So we are blowing and going in all sorts of therapy and ministry and stuff. And it's just so odd to me and ironic and funny and weird that we all still work together and for the most part, get along. It's kind of strange. It's not really normal. I think, I think most families that work together, there's lots of drama and, and, uh, lots of stepping on toes, but we, you know, we did pretty good so, at, at, uh, respecting boundaries. So what, what <laughs> set you on this path? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. growing up in this house where, yeah, so yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. So early on, I, I have always been on, on the Enneagram. I'm a type nine. And so a type nine, sadly for all the nines out there, like we, we're just such people pleasers. You know, we just genuinely want to be happy, uh, when others are happy. That's kind of our, our role. We want the peacemaker kind of deal, the peacekeeper. Um, so that was my role in our family. I mean, I, I adopted that early on, you know, sadly, my earliest memory is trauma where I do remember my mom, I think my dad might've disclosed something to her the previous week. And then I, I what I remember is seeing my mom with her hands up, you know, ah, kind of this at my dad and me kind of protecting my brother. And that kind of became my role in our family of just like, Hey, I need to keep the peace. I need to try and make everything okay, which is such a stereotype and such a symptom of that early childhood trauma and recovery. Right. I mean, but there's there's another aspect to that. I mean, there's two aspects. Yeah. One is that a, a person who is trying to keep the peace or an Enneagram nine is a control freak. They're just trying to control everything by not having anybody be upset, but they're still a control freak. That's true. But then yeah. the second part is that to pull that off, you have to disappear. You can't be oh, yeah. present as a person because yeah. you have to think about what everybody else is going to need to keep the peace. So at right. a young age, what does that look like for you when you're, you're oh, kind of yeah. abandoning your own identity within the family system? Oh my gosh. I love your questions. There's already, I, this is so good. Uh, <laughs> taking, I would probably say for me, just taking care of the, the addict parent, you know, and I, I, I still 
in a lot of ways today can see that, you know, when I look at my own child now to where she wants to take care of me, which is funny because I have my ruptured Achilles. And I, so she uh, uh, walking around the house, she's three, she'll limp like her, her foot's hurt. And she'll come say, daddy, my foot hurt, you know. Now, for me, I definitely was like that as a, as a little bitty boy. As I grew older, though, I mean, I oftentimes, you, you would talk about family coming first. I mean, that's kind of something in the South that we just grow up in. But in my, in my case, like, I would cancel functions and I would cancel extracurricular activities with friends and stuff to appease mom and dad, you know, to like make sure that they're okay. You know, as long as they give me the green light on this, that, or the other, that's fine. And that's, that is kind of normal in terms of parenting, but then what happens when that carries over into adulthood, you know, and that is a direct, uh, you know, uh, I would probably say direct result of just childhood trauma stuff growing up in their, their household. Cause it's not like, you know, my parents, they got divorced when I was five. I mean, around that same first memory, they got divorced around there and then stayed divorced for like two years. And I even remember them dating other people. You know, I have memories of that. Of, <laughs> of I think my mom went on a couple of days with a fireman and my dad dated some other lady or something like that. And they were fine people. But, you know, I think my parents on my second birthday or not, I'm sorry, seventh birthday, they, um, I guess, kind of decided that, hey, we need to work things out. And that they started that process. And then, you know, they at that point, my dad was steeped in recovery. He's going to counseling every week. He's in all sorts of 12-step programs. You know, he had started going to church a lot more, uh, really involved and everything like that. And I think my mom saw that as like, okay, he really is changing. Let me get back together. So, but so it, what did that look like to you at during those two <laughs> years where it goes from like chaos in the house to, to yeah. dad just being like, deep diving into the recovery world and the 12 step world. What, what did well, that mean? And, uh, and all, yeah. For me personally, I would probably look back at that now as an adult at the time. I don't think I could have expressed this as a seven year old or eight year old or whatever, but now looking back at it with different words and different eyes, I would say relief. Like I think in those first uh, formidable years of my childhood, like it felt chaotic. I think it just felt very chaotic. It felt very, insecure in terms of the attachment with mom and dad and all that kind of stuff. I mean, just the stereotypical clinical side of things that you see in childhood trauma of like, all right, there is a detachment with mom and dad because their relationship was so volatile and chaotic in the beginning that they, I don't think that they, and they would readily admit this. I don't think they had the emotional capacity in those early years of recovery to kind of be there with, with me and my brother for whatever it is that we needed. So which, which Um, of the S's, I know there's four. I can only think of three of them that uh, make it hard for us to get proper attachment as children to feel safe. Oh, you're, yeah, the uh, the Balby stuff. That, I don't remember the fourth yeah. S. But which what what do you feel like was missing during the chaos? Was it not feeling safe? definitely soothing? Okay, so you weren't definitely soothing. Weren't yeah, soothing. and I can I can directly see that as linked up to to my own struggles with pornography later on when my teen years and adolescence and stuff like that, because that's ultimately what my dad is a sex addict. So he's in recovery for that. And so uh, sadly, you know, he was doing everything he possibly could to self soothe himself, you know, to be able to chill out and, and really calm and find that peace or whatever. And sadly, that's where I find found my kind of lacking there where it's like, I go to dad early on of looking for, all the stuff you look for as a little kid and he's not necessarily available, whether it's work or dealing with mom stuff or whatever. Uh, and same thing with my mom. I mean, my mom was just so codependent on my dad. Um, and so I watched her ultimately soothe when he's okay. If he's okay, then she's okay. And vice versa too. Like if mom's okay, then he's okay. So for me, the self soothing part, it was missing because I wasn't really being taught or modeled, I guess, probably what self-soothing looked like. Like when you, like my daughter right now, she's going through this transition of a sleep regression. And so she, oh my gosh, she gets out of bed, you know, five times a night, it seems like. And so we're trying to teach her how to self-soothe to when she's afraid. And to he, to the language that her and I, that my wife and I give to her, it's probably not the language that I got <laughs> growing up. Whereas like, it's okay to be afraid. You know, we all get afraid. Like it's, it's fine. You know, come here, here. When we're afraid, we just find our peace or we pray or we, you know, 
ask God to kind of come in and be present with us. And we just get real quiet. You know, I don't think I got that. <laughs> I might have, but I don't Remember recall it. it at all. So, so <laughs> dad and mom are back together. They're doing their work, yeah. but you still come yeah. into your teenage years feeling a hole that you're needing to fill. What oh, was yeah. that? What was oh, that yeah. about? Yeah. So they like when I, when they got back together, uh, you know, obviously when you're a little kid, it's like, yay, mom and dad back together. But that last, that, that kind of rose colored glasses thing that they had in love and everything did not last very long. And I within the year, they were back to kind of fighting behind closed doors. And as, as time progressed through my childhood into my teen years, that kind of became the norm. I have a lot of memories of me and my brother or whatever, whoever is there just kind of being downstairs and mom and dad are hashing out something upstairs, you know, they're talking and arguing and you can hear them, but you don't know what's being said. You just know that they're not okay. And so for me, the, what bled over from their relationship into my teen years was like this instability kind of deal to where it was always like, can I trust whether or not they're going to go or stay? You know, like, is this, you know, there are probably plenty of times when I was a teenager that I would pray to God, like, I just kind of wish they'd get divorced and be done with this. You know, I wish I would, I just want this to stop. So the hole that I was trying to fill again was that kind of like peace. I just need some sort of settlement. And so for me, I turned to straight up performance Christianity. I mean, I went to the, my parents too, same thing to where they were dealing with a lot of their own shame in the church uh, around sexual addiction at the time. I mean, this is like, late early uh, mid to late 90s early 2000s where sex addiction recovery has not i mean oh my gosh wouldn't touch it in any church yeah yeah everybody's still meeting in the basements and stuff and so they started churches helped start churches they left this big church and then we we started a or they helped start a little tiny church met in a school that we stayed at for the majority of my youth but in that school we had some people that were like yeah you should send them to a private christian school and so that's what we did in the eighth grade I mean, I went full on to where I'm like running for the class chaplain. <laughs> I don't know what an eighth grader uh, in the as the class chaplain does, other than like yeah. pray for but, the meals. But it's, I'm, I guess that's I'm what sure I did. it was cute. Whatever it was, <laughs> whatever I'm sure it was cute, right? Uh, but we, I just became inundated in that 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 I would just probably call it evangelical culture. I guess I don't like using that word per se as like a negative thing, but there's yeah. a certain yeah. There's a certain it's, kind of performance piece it's just, to it. It's churchianity. But churchianity, the, yeah, that's a better the, word. The for hard it, yeah. part is I'm picturing you as this young man who's engaging in his faith, engaging God, yeah. but then also starting to self-soothe in ways that are disconnecting. And so you are 100%. now developing the habit of a, a life that's not integrated, where you've got these two different oh, lives. Yeah. So what was that doing to your young heart? Oh man, I, for me, anxiety, and to this day, that is the product of my my choices and my own trauma of not learning how to self soothe healthily. To where you know I, I would get so anxious around my safety, my future. I can remember too. Oh my gosh, I remember at uh, sixteen years old, I we just had this big spiritual emphasis week thing that came to our our church uh, or came to our school, I think. And this guy come up, and he was one of those pastor people that's like, I don't know how, what to describe them as other than like the Chris Farley character of I live in a van down by the river. You know, your life is going to go terrible if you don't, you know, pray to God and and repent and this or the other. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You, you live in your RV and you travel. Oh, okay. Like, you, I'm not sure that's the life I want. But I love <laughs> this, Jesus, is, you know? this is the end product um, of doing <laughs> it your way. Okie dokie. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and I remember just he, whatever message he shared, terrified me, you know, and I went to my Bible teacher, um, just talking about the future. I was like, I'm really scared. You know, like, I don't know what to major in in college. Like, is there even going to be a future? You know, like when is Jesus, he's talking about Jesus coming back. Like, and you know, what do I do? And he, my Bible teacher, his advice to me, his counsel to me was, ah, man, don't don't worry about it. You know, Jesus is going to come back in the year 2030, so I wouldn't take it too seriously. Oh, my goodness. You know, I was like, what? What? What What advice to give to a 16-year-old? You know, oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> not great counsel. Uh-huh. Not great counsel at the, Christ, at the Christian school. Um, bless bless his heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> There's a lot of bless their hearts, right? A lot of bless their hearts. I, but I will say, though, you know, that did lay down the foundation for my later on in life for, 
my spiritual journey, you know, this, cause you go to Christian school, man, like you are inundated with, I mean, we're memorizing Bible verses on Friday mornings, you know, like <laughs> we're pledge allegiance to the, the Christian flag and the Bible and the, and the American flag all at once. And it's like, you're really committed when you're in a Christian school. You, in order, if you want to succeed in a Christian school, man, you better put on the identity. Um, and I certainly did. The problem with that is that it ran its course by my senior year. And by my senior year, I would pretty much dabbled in like smoking pot a little bit, not much or anything. I, I really was scared of substances. I had addiction to my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family too, that I have terrible memories of grandparents just being a little too drunk during Christmas. And so I, I kind of shied away from that in high school, but then everything in me in my senior year is telling me to bounce. Like I need to leave, you know, I need to get out of here. The problem with that is I didn't have great grades because I wasn't exactly focused on school. So to speak. what the, the, the so marijuana I, didn't help you focus. What, what's going on here? Sadly, it helped the anxiety, but it just, you know, it didn't really help me focus and do well in school because I didn't care. <laughs> it took away all the anxiety. Oh, so your choices were limited as you're trying to bounce. Very limited. Right, right, right. So I, I said, I said, you know what? I I want to go to Mississippi State. And I, I took a, a campus visit there and a pretty girl gave me a visit uh, or gave me a tour from the visit. And I thought, Man, this like she was real nice to me. It's like this is the first time where girls like paid attention to me. It's amazing, and I don't even know her. This is so cool. And I'm like, all right, she gives me her number. We'll see you. On- I never saw that girl again. You know, I don't know what <laughs> happened to her. So Mississippi State is my alma mater that I went to. But when I got there, I'd never found that girl ever again. And so I tried to, you know, truly fill lots of uh, the holes from from high school with lots of different types of relationships. And, you know, when I say types of relationships, I I would even throw fraternity in that, too, because I really wanted a sense of belonging. And I think because of my parents' unique situation where they're in recovery and they're really trying to work on their marriage and they really care about their faith and they're really invested in one another and they really love each other, like in a real way to where they model great. They do model great things where it's repair work, but. Repair takes a lot of time and patience and for a teenager to watch that and not really have context for the whole story at that point in my life, you know, it, you, it leaves you with questions and holes, which truly is, is kind so of the do norm. You, do you think it would have been better if they had brought you into that journey in a more clear and specific way? Because there's obviously a line as a counselor, you know, where it's like, okay, parents, yeah. you're oversharing now. But it, it sounds like you being left in the dark was not healthy. So how would you have counseled them if they were on your couch? Yeah, but what a great question. Oh, my gosh. I get this question asked so much with my own clients now with when they're in recovery and how much do we include the kids and this, that, or the other. And what do we tell them? What do we not tell them? What do we disclose? You know, it's all dependent on the child. For me, I was, I probably, I think my dad did the best that he could in terms of disclosing his behaviors, you know, because you can't tell a 13 year old the nitty gritty details of sex addiction. That's not going to be received in in the light that, let's say, a 20 year old would hear, or even a 17 year old for that matter, simply because at 13, you're at like the apex of hormones and puberty, and all you're thinking about is the opposite sex, but you can't figure it out. Uh, side note, I'm 36. I still haven't figured it out, but, um, and, and that, in that regard, you know, from, from my perspective, I would have probably wanted him to actually wait until I started really struggling with like my own stuff, because I feel as though as a, as a counselor now in my own life journey, it's like, you know, as parents, we want what's best for our kids. And so, you know, old school parenting is like parenting out of fear. And in addiction, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of shame and guilt. And even in recovery, too, especially in recovery, because you're taking away that pacifier that let, allows you to soothe. And so you then have to, like, figure it out. And so a lot of what my dad's message to me growing up, again, it's kind of a, a, a perfect storm of events for me. I look at it as because that's in the, the height of purity culture where the purity movement in, in uh, Christianity kind of took over to where, it, you know, you, I started reading the, think about this. I started reading, I kissed dating goodbye at age. I was 12. just going to say height of purity culture. I remember that book. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, nobody said like, hey, you can, yeah. you can oh. only court if other people are courting. If everybody else is dating, right. who in the hell are you going to court? Yeah. So for me, this just kind of reinforces this idea that I don't fit in. You know, nobody gets me. And that's when I get to college, I really wanted to fit in like, like so much. So now I didn't recognize at the time that I was wildly codependent and wildly insecure and, and desperately thought that I needed the validation. Okay. Before we get back to college though, let's hit, let's hit the yeah, last yeah, yeah. question at a different angle. Your dad's doing the best to talk about oh, his stuff, but it doesn't sound like you're yeah. getting much if any communication of here's what me and your mom or here's what me and your dad are wrestling with so would it have been helpful with that insecure anxious feeling if you had known this is where we're at this is what we're working on yeah i think it would have honestly if they had presented in a light that was like hey this is relationship you know this is what we do in relationship we hurt one another we also help heal one another you know we we do the best that we can you know but it, uh, i think in in looking hindsight obviously is 2020 and looking back into those early formative years of my life i would have probably rather them waited and kept good boundaries with their own their own stuff because just the nature of my parents you know any addiction couple or couple in addiction where there are co-addicts, it's going to be chaotic. You know, that little Cartman triangle, uh, drama triangle, if, you, if you're familiar with that. I mean, that that is pretty much what I was, well, that's what I witnessed. I witnessed mom being portrayed as the victim, that is the perpetrator. That would often flip and they would get gridlocked. And then here I am in my little family system view, adopting the role of rescuing. You know, I need to go in there and make it okay, you know? And so even if they would have told me at those, at those ages, like 12, 13, 14, whatever, but here's what mom and dad are struggling with. I don't know that I would have the emotional intelligence to really understand it in the degree that they probably would want me to. However, I say that it's like hindsight's 2020. I do wish I could have seen them say things like marriage is, is incredibly difficult, but do not do not take what we're doing as like your story, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, it's hard to say that because I like, that's just hindsight because I, it, you catch yourself in these moments with your spouse and you, you know that you're in your own, you're triggered or whatever. And you want to just say the truth. But <laughs> I think a lot of that was happening in my parents behind closed yeah. doors. And so I, they, I think, I think it's important ahead, for parents who are listening to, to think through this. Because I know when I got divorced, there were so many things that I thought I had protected my kids from. But then in conversations over the next couple of years, I'm like, oh, my gosh, am I that stupid? Like, I felt really stupid. And then that made me feel like, (laughs) geez, a lot of what I thought was protecting them was just keeping them in the dark where they were aware of things but didn't understand it. And surely there was an appropriate way to help them feel safe that they probably didn't feel safe because they didn't understand. And so I, I think it is different for every kid, but that every couple should work that out with like, okay, we need to believe that our kids are seeing and uh, having an opinion about far more than we realize. And so how do Mm -hmm. we keep them in the loop in the way that makes them feel safe? Justin, what are you thinking so far? I want to know what you're thinking. So real, real quick, I, I have a question, Aaron. You're, you're literally just keep hitting, we'll say dingers over the fence. So I'm going, <laughs> I'm going in now. Um, you Finger. know, one, one thing I wanted to ask is um, the difference between because your mom and dad were not counselors their whole entire life. So no, at, some, at, no. at some at some point they went back and they went to back to school to be, get their counseling degrees and work this path of of counseling and help with their recovery. Where did that, did that change your dynamics of you growing up of, Hey, I'm more interested in what's going on or, uh, their insight to you. Did that change on how they spoke to you as they're diving more into the psychology point, uh, uh, parts of this understanding? What does that look like in your journey? I mean, uh, obviously, yes. The answer to that question is yes, because I think everybody is just a, a sign of maturity. You come to a point in your life where you look at your parents at some point and you, you say, dear God, they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> they were simply doing the best they could with the very limited resources they had. Oh, man, I hope them. I hope that now, every 
kid comes to that point in their life. Oh, the oh, the great. I, I hope so too. I think I think if you choose the the if if you as a young man or a young lady choose the path of growth and maturity, you have to come to that conclusion because you recognize like through humility. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I I'm I'm faking it till I make it. Oftentimes, the imposter syndrome comes out, and I think that's true of my parents. But like for them to, it's funny to say that they they weren't a counselor because from my angle of things, like we would stay after church. I was, I'm laughing about this because I just told the story to the to a client uh, this morning uh, about this because he's he was talking complaining about church, and I said, "Well, when my church lasted." Uh, it, it went from like eight 30 in the morning. Cause we had to help set up, you know, and then two services, uh, then you had to tear down. So by at about one o'clock you're getting ready to leave. But my parents, because they love people and they genuinely want to help people, uh, would stay afterwards and like talk to people nonstop. I mean, like if I didn't go and yank on my dad's like collar or his shirt or something, like, come on, like I'm hungry. Like we need to go to Wendy's or something. What is wrong with you? They would stay and talk and invest in people. And so I watched them counsel without the license, the majority of my upbringing. And then for them, I think I want to say I was like, I don't know the exact year, but I feel like I was a, a junior in high or a senior in high school, maybe freshman in college. And that's when they started to go back to school. They started to do their master's. My dad had started an MBA program a, uh, a long time ago and then quit that and decided that roughly around when me and my brother kind of pieced out of the house and we did the whole college thing. That's when my parents were like, let's start this career. You know, let, let, we need to kind of take our life seriously. And, and truly, you know, I can look back, I can look at that when they started, you know, in Atlanta, I think they started in a, a place called PSI, or I think it's called Richmond now by a guy named, uh, under the guy, guidance of a guy named Doug Rosenau, who sadly passed away. He was a great, uh, therapist and wonderful, wonderful person. Um, they started with him and then transferred over to Mississippi college, like my midway through my junior year. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I really didn't. I took every dang personality test, every stinking career, whatever. I went to the career counseling maybe once a week for that year, and I just couldn't figure it out. And then finally, you know, you get that letter from the school. They're like, you have enough hours to graduate, but you haven't declared anything. And I'm like, ah, crap. So I'm not kidding when I say this. I didn't consult with anybody. I didn't consult with my parents. I opened up. They used to have the course catalogs, if you remember and I opened up the course catalog from Mississippi State, and I just went to the first one that I saw only required a few classes, which was social work. Uh-huh. And so I, I I signed up for all the social work program, and they let me in miraculously and uh, got that degree. And as I'm getting the degree, I'm like telling my dad and my parents, like, well, we're getting our degree, too. How funny is that? Good impersonation of your dad, as, by the way. Add, add, add a little yeah, more Mississippi yeah, yeah, yeah. to it, and you got him down. <laughs> but truly uh you know i go to i could start doing social work and they're starting to do their psychology classes and then our our, it's like our conversations changed sadly though this is where the story kind of takes a dark turn because during my college years during my true social work years and stuff my dad was plagued with like clinical depression i mean truly major depressive disorder major depressive episode that lasted about two years, you know, to where he had been through a job change and he was unhappy, which kind of sparked the whole going back to school. But I think the weight of life, the absence of me, of my brother kind of piecing out of the house, plus the dynamic between him and my mom, I think that a lot of it weighed on him and he wasn't taking care of himself back then, you know. And so uh, sadly, he ended up attempting suicide. Now, thank God it didn't go through and he mm-hmm. failed at that. But it affected me so much. I mean, it really did. Cause at that point, I think I looked at my dad as like, I'm doing everything as the good son. I, I I'm doing the good thing that I'm supposed to do. And then you just abandoned me. Like you, you get all of a sudden you get selfish and want to kill yourself. I really remember saying that to him and it's embarrassing to say that now, but I was 20 years old, you know, I was a kid and I didn't understand depression. I didn't, I didn't get it at all. And so part of me getting into school and into psychology and being a therapist was to understand what the hell just happened, mm. you know, cause it was such a, a, a totally not my dad. Like 
growing up, my dad was a personal, personable, approachable, lovable, fun-loving guy who just liked to have fun. And then when the depression hit, you know, he totally changed personality. I mean, it was like, holy crap. I remember going to the SEC championship in Atlanta and I brought my fraternity brothers and I'm like, ham, I'm, I'm hyping it up. Like, oh, we're going to have a great time. We're going to go to the varsity. We'll go to the bar. It's going to be great. My dad's going to come. going to have a great time. And we, we go there and he didn't speak. Mm. You know, that's not why you've met my dad. Yeah. That's not like him. And so it, it truly threw me for a loop that took me about four years of, of good, hard therapy to kind of get out of. So I kind of, I, I look at my upbringing in my childhood, especially as a childhood uh, in, a, in an addictive system, as more of yeah. survival. And I think that's what, true of most kids because I didn't really start putting the pieces together until I was like you, 23. What were you feeling after that happened with your dad that took you a while to get out of? Just the fear. I mean, you've already got the abandonment of your parents divorcing young. Yeah. They get back together. You're afraid yeah. because of what's happening. They're going to get divorced again, sometimes hoping for it. Now you have your dad doing what is the most painful abandonment uh, where Mm -hmm. it feels like the most selfish thing to you. So is that what you're working through this fear of? Mm -hmm. I I was so angry. I was angry because I felt, uh, I think as a 23 year old, I think I felt I I was led astray, you know, that I was given this framework and this ideology that doesn't help. It makes you worse. That's what I thought you know, this guilt and shame and all this kind of stuff, which is not yeah. the gospel, what, you know? What was and the so that's where, beneath that anger? Yeah, but betrayal, truly betrayal. I really felt betrayed like he had, uh, he was not only abandoning, you know, me, but he was this hurting mom, you know, and I'm a firstborn, it's hurting my brother too, but I, I'm a firstborn, so that role of protector and legacy and all that kind of stuff just took over and I couldn't hardly talk to him, you know? Uh, so much so that they made a job change or a shift in their lifestyle and sold everything in Atlanta, moved here to Mississippi. And my dad meets this guy named Phil Harden, who is a therapist here just by happenstance. They were literally at Primo's, which is a cafe here in, in Madison. And the, hey, you met this guy, Phil? No, I'm Roan, blah, blah, blah. Well, they get to talking. And I, at the time, I, I was just about to graduate college. And my dad knew that I was struggling. I wasn't talking to him. We were not in a good place. And so he made a suggestion. He came to visit me in Starkville. He made a suggestion. He said, well, I, I, I met this therapist guy that I think you might like, you know, and I think you should go. And so I started going. And I that Phil took one look at me and was like, so tell me about your dad. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm telling you, it was like everything I could do to just be like, <laughs> no, I'm not. What's He's uh, he's fine. I don't want to talk to him at all. Like, what are you talking about? Not at all. From that point on, my work with Phil really started to lay in the foundation of kind of the work that I do now with people. You know, I started, he made me write a letter to my dad. And you should, the first, I wish I kept the first draft of it because all it was was like, dear dad, F you, you effing da 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 da. I mean, just like whatever was coming to my mind. And wow. then, Phil, you know, I brought it to therapy the next week or whatever. And Phil was like, you're pretty angry. And my, my response to him was like, I'm not effing angry. What are you talking about? You know? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, over, over the course of about six months of going to therapy every week, you know, I started writing that letter and it moved from anger to like, okay, I think I get it to, all right, I, I really get it to, I think I'm depressed too. And I think I'm traumatized too, where, Oh my gosh, I forgive you. I totally understand. And I was able to do this. This is the beautiful part about me and my dad's story that I, I'm so thankful that I have this because I, I know it's just so rare for guys and sons to, you know, Phil started something very similar um, to like the Eldridge stuff back in the early 2000s. And he affectionately calls it deer camp because in Mississippi, you know, you can't. You can't get a bunch of rednecks and tough boys to come out there. Bless and, their hearts. You know, talk about their. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You cannot talk about feelings amongst the peers here. So, how are we going to get guys to connect with their stories? And so he calls it Deer Camp, which really is called Men's Coaching Weekend. 
because that way you can get a guy to be like, yeah, man, I'll come to deer camp. You want to bring a six pack? I'll grab my gun. Let's go, dude. Load up the truck. Woo. And they get there and it's like, well, not that beer and not that gun. So just leave it on the car. Come on, share, right? Hey, so, hey, real, real, real quick, and that is a real thing too. So I want you to make sure that you emphasize that when you call it <laughs> yeah, yeah. or fish camp. Listen, I know up. this. I know this podcast reaches people all over. Mm-hmm. And it, it, listen, if you would like to get to know the world, just do what Mark Twain says: just come spend some time in Mississippi. <laughs> you will understand the world in a totally different, different light. I truly, it is now, a Justin, strange is, place. Is that what you went I mean, to, I, Justin? Was one of these deer camps? I, I, I went to fish camp and several guys showed up with their fishing poles and tackle boxes. And then they, they, they left it in the car and they never took it out the whole weekend. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And, and you would think, you know, to that point, you would think that those types of guys would just, you know, after they realize like they've been trapped or something or we've been honey potted or whatever. Hey, this ain't cool, man. We ain't sharing our stuff. You would think, you would think that they would like leave. They never leave. You know, literally, they stay forever, and they come back over and over again to all the deer camps. Uh, truly, it's funny because it just shows you how how many men are just craving connection, just like honest connection. And so, that being said, I got to really, I got to read. You know, when you go to deer camp, just lay out the format a little bit. When you go to deer camp, you have to share your story, but you you wade into the water, and that's not just like you get there and be like, "Who are you? What are you doing?" All that kind of stuff. They tell you, you know, here's some questions to ponder. Go journal about it. And then, you know, they, they have some teaching around what it means to be masculine and to be a man in and, and ways that you probably haven't heard it, you know. And on top of that, they cuss, you know. And we're in the South where it's like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. You don't ever cuss at all. You don't definitely don't say the F word. And here you have dudes who are like pastors and lawyers and judges and construction workers and therapists, and they're all cussing, you know. It to me as a I was literally 22 years old when I went, and I have a 22 year old young man who has this framework, this hierarchy of church where you're like you're supposed to be a nice guy and you got to put a smile on and you got to say how you doing, nice to meet you, God bless you, you know whatever it is that you think you're supposed to be. Um, then you see all these guys kind of take it their masks off a little bit, and you're going, okay, that's weird. And then on Saturday, you do go through your story. You tell your story. And at 22 years old, I felt like I didn't have one. You know, I listened to a couple of these guys that had shared their stories. And I'm going like, well, shit, I ain't that bad. You know, I mean, you you mean whatever. And so then I get to my turn. You're not that bad because you 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 haven't learned how to say shit yet. I know. (laughs) Hey, hi. A couple of hair marriages for that one later. Um, so I, uh, 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 basically it gets to my turn to share and I, you know, I share and, and Phil makes me get up with my dad and he's like, you know, did you bring that letter I asked you to bring? And I said, I think I did. Yeah. So I got up and I got to read that letter to my dad that started out as like, I hate you, you know? And it ended with like, not only do I love you, I'm so thankful for the man, the model that you chose to me or whatever. And I got to hug him and embrace. And then all these dudes, like I'm crying, my dad's crying, but then like looking around and seeing all the other guys like crying, there's another father son duo there too, who his name's uh, Jack page and Jason page. And Jason is my age. And I thought I was gonna be the youngest person there. Jason heard my story and he heard the relationship they have with my dad. And he had all this trauma between his mom and dad and stuff or whatever. And his mom wasn't involved in his life at the time. And Oh my gosh. Like to watch, he came up to me and like grabbed me, started crying with me and was like, you don't understand how much I love you. Like ugly cry, you know? And for me as a 22 year old young man, who's never, I don't, I was like, I'm not comfortable with this. Right. It was the first time I felt Jesus was skin Mm -hmm. on. I mean, that's like truly, you know, and to share in that with that community of guys, like the healing relationship that, that happened between me and my dad moved on. It allowed us like foundationally to do what we do now because like we were able to repair, move on. And, you know, nowadays I spend so long, I spent literally 14, 15 years ago. And nowadays I'm, I look back at that time as just such a, a huge learning, um, a, a, a growth exercise, <laughs> if you want to say that, because it was hard. It was very difficult, but it's such a precious thing to have because I, I sit with men all day long. I'll, I'll be in session the rest of the day today and not one of them will have what I just shared. They will not understand 
the the true prodigal feeling of like coming back to your dad and being like, not only do I need forgiveness for my own actions and my own stuff that I've hidden, you know, I need to forgive you, you know, to move away from the older brother role and the younger brother role and to see him just as a dad, as a man, you know, it bestowed to me, if I feel like it bestowed masculinity. And I think that's one of those things that like, you can't, you cannot become masculine until it's given to you. Wait, you know, wait, that's wait, why say, there's a, in my opinion, again. there's a say it, let's let's say it slowly yeah, and think yeah, yeah. through these words you just said. You can't become masculine until it's been given to you. Explain that yeah. a little more. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I I love unpacking that one because as men, we're given this world of expectations and roles and things that you must perform to. And so you think that being a man is like meeting obligations, you know, of like, I take out the dishes. Hey, I do things, you know, I'm, I help out around the house. You know, I provide money and, and all that kind of stuff. And then you, you go and sit with a bunch of dudes in the woods who've been living 50 years like that and how miserably depressed they are and how absolutely insecure and inadequate they feel and how all of their secret behaviors and all of their hidden choices <laughs> just end up turning that reality in and of itself and shifts the paradigm totally to be a masculine person means that like, you know, I, I get all this stuff too from um, a great book called uh, Adam's return mm-hmm. by Richard Rohr. I think he, he put it in there just so well, the way he framed it up to where he frames Jesus as like this warrior lover. I'm not, I'm not going to remember it all correctly. Um, but this warrior lover um, man kind of deal and where we as as men have kind of gone off with that because we've abandoned certain rules of life, you know, that ancient people kind of knew, which would be like, life is hard. You got to do hard things. I mean, number one, number two is that you're not that important. You got value, but like you don't matter as much as you think you do. You know, you got to be there for number three, which is, you know, life ain't about you. It's about others. It's about putting others first. And he, he would even say too that like, the fifth rule is, you know, you're going to die. <laughs> like you have to understand your mortality. And so in order to do that, like all most cultures would have men go through and little boys go through tasks. They would have to go through these things, you know, whether it's a bar mitzvah or a little, uh, like in, in tribal cultures, they go through mm-hmm. the namesake yeah. journey go, and stuff go like shoot that. a tiger, go you sit know? on a mountain for four days. There, there is an initiation. Right, By the right, way, right. men, uh, if you want to know more about this book and how it is has been used in initiation, go back to probably podcast, I want to say like 20 to 30, and look up Scott Dente talking about using that book ah, yeah. and those five principles for his son's 16th birthday, and it will... Oh, that's so will, awesome. And, I need and to Nate to was part of that because... On the morning of his birthday, he was given a backpack with five rocks to carry around with each one of those written on it. And uh, I, I won't I won't give it away, but I, I if, yeah, if you want to no, deep man, dive into great. what Rose talking about, because it's it's so important and it seems so depressing yeah. at first. Like what? Mm-hmm. You're telling me that there's there's going to be release and hope when I realize I'm not that important? I, come on, that is not what I've been told by my <laughs> third grade teacher. Wait, I have exactly I'm in my world. And, yeah, I'm I'm mommy's special boy. I'm daddy's favorite. You know, it's like yeah. No, so it. you okay. so you entered into <laughs> an initiation that was handed to you by other guys, which which is yeah, so important. Truly. Why? Why? Okay, yeah. let's let you answer the rest of the question. Why is it important to receive that from other men versus I read the book, so now I can give it to myself. <laughs> well, I read a book and I, you know, I did stay at a holiday in last night. So I'm pretty, you know, I'm on the up and up. Uh, no, I, it is so important in the same way that you can't save yourself. You know, like you have to have the reason why Jesus exists is because you can't do it alone. You cannot absolve yourself of sin. You know, you can't just do it. I wish you could. And life would be a lot better if you could, uh, or you would, you maybe not better, but you certainly would be in more control. And as a person who likes control, that would be helpful, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that paradigm, but to be given masculinity, uh, by other guys, it's, it's kind of, it's important simply because you have to acknowledge that you are not alone. Not only can you not do it alone, like you never alone alone. And that is to me, the number one killer of men is the narrative that you think that you're all by yourself. 
and you're on an island. And it's where people really start to act crazy when they're isolated. And so in order to be included into, you know, the life that God promises you and the life that you deserve, truly, you you have to seek it out. You have to go look for it. You have to go on a journey. You can't, it's not just, nobody's going to, this ain't the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? We're not going to knock on the door and be like, hey, you want to be a man today? You know, give me $100,000 and we'll take you to heaven or whatever their religion is. And so, like, you, you have to understand that as a guy, you you face a pressure and a role that is difficult. Like, you have to provide safety. You're not just a provider financially. And I think that's what I saw in all those men. And I think that's what they were telling me. In fact, I know that's what they're telling me. He's like, dude, uh, whatever you think that you got to do, abandon it. You know, you just need to seek love and affection and affirmation and all that kind of stuff first from God and then express it through other, as opposed to being like, what can I get? You know, if I, if I go to this deer camp, is this going to be a networking thing for me? Am I going to be able to get a new job? Am I going to be able to find more income? You know, like that kind of stuff. Like that doesn't make you a man. And I, I needed to hear that, especially coming from like, I was literally still in college. So like I was still inundated with the whole frat life thing where you're, God, I mean, I, I would discourage that type of fraternity. Right. That's <laughs> what I didn't to. give you a, a <laughs> you know. good version of what being a man is. All right. So there are <laughs> dozens of questions that need to be asked to flesh this story out, but we're, we're yeah. running long, but Justin, yeah. we can yeah. run a little longer to ask one more question, right? But what, what we're not in a yeah, hurry. I think we're good. We never we'll promised start. these would be an yeah. hour long. So whoever thought we had to keep oh, man. that. I so, love it. I so, okay. four hours. <laughs> let's let's, go. Look, I let's Joe plan. Rogan this thing. Uh, <laughs> What's uh, here, here's the, the last thing that I want to hear you talk about because you, you mentioned it yeah. uh, just before with the masculinity comment uh, about it's concerning why we need other people to know Jesus because you described him in these yeah. vastly different ways. And it immediately made me think of a morning that I had preached on the woman that anointed Jesus feet at the Pharisee's house and the Jesus that I taught, being an eight, being an asshole, was Jesus the protector. <laughs> like she's doing this, and I'm I'm seeing Jesus not even looking at her, but like glaring right into the eyes of every person who might try to stop her, where he's like, step up and try to stop her. Just and you're like Jesus was Clint Eastwood, <laughs> and you didn't mess. And, and and people would hear that version and be like, Oh, we we like that. Jesus is a tough guy. But then yeah. that afternoon, I was on the phone with an Anglican pre-sex therapist friend of mine who said, I was thinking about Jesus at the Pharisees. And I'm like, what? I was just teaching on that this morning. And he's a four. And he describes Jesus like a four would. Yeah. And Jesus is like so present yeah. and attentive and gentle. And I'm sitting in the car talking to him. And I want to correct him, be like, that's not, no, that's not what's happening here. Jesus is scaring the crap out of the Pharisees. <laughs> And it was such a gentle spanking that day to realize, A, that I was constantly handing people a version of Jesus that didn't represent what they could ever personally connect with and say, I'm made in his image and I can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, become more like him. It was just a Hollywood version from their perspective. But also that I had so much to learn from other men and women in my life that show me parts of Jesus that I don't naturally see, that I'm constantly making Jesus into my image. The old statement, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. Thank you, Voltaire, for that. So talk talk to us a little bit more about why we need other men and community and voices in our life to see the more complete picture of Jesus. I love what you just said because the whole, I mean, that, that's the great work of redemption and sanctification and everything. Like you, like having to find Jesus in people is very challenging, you know? And I think of like my job, um, uh, I think of my job in terms of, of that truly of like trying to find some type of like, a redemptive quality in people where you feel like 
monstrous almost to where it's like, I, I want to see Jesus in people. I want to see the that masculine person, but oftentimes it's very difficult to see. You know, it, it is so funny to me to think like uh, when I when I think of what it means to be a man in community, it does kind of make me laugh because when I like we were saying like Jesus and the eight and all that kind of stuff, and you're trying to do like that to me, I'm like I always wanted to hear preachers and people who preaching those things is like did you ever do you ever think jesus told dirty jokes you know like i like that version of jesus or like I'm, the ver- i'm an eight of course i believe jesus told dirty jokes right yeah but on the same type of that it's like <laughs> do you think jesus you know farted you know like stuff that like clearly he did because he's human and there's like this 30 year gap in his life that we just kind of have assumptions and and whatever it is you want to assume like the reality of Jesus is that he is God in flesh, and he chose that to limit himself. And I, I see a lot of men that come in and in and out. I mean, he chose that not just to limit himself just for the sake of limiting himself, but more so to, like, show, hey, you can. Like, here's how you do it. Mm. You know, it wasn't through meanness or any of that stuff. It's kindness that leads us to repentance. Isn't that you know? crazy, though, when you say, did Jesus fart, most, uh, I mean, most of us that grew up in the church or Christian schools feel cringy about that. Like, well, let's not, let's not talk about the holy flatulence. That's, that's not appropriate. But then I immediately think of the whole Kim, Kim John un thing that it's like, we can't believe that our leader defecates, that he farts. We have to actually create a completely bullshit version of our leader that doesn't have these human qualities. And that is such a twisted need in my heart where I feel like I'm demeaning Jesus if I allow him to be as human as he is God. Yeah, you know, I, I, but I, then, I totally but that, that then robs me right of the permission right. to be human. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think that's the, when I look at the cross, right? I, he has. I've always thought about this my entire life of being a Christian because I, I really, when I say that I've been a Christian my entire life, I'm mean, five years old. That might be the first thing that I did where my dad literally used a bunny to like express like here's jesus he's the bunny and he's a sacrificial bunny and he allows us to talk to god and my five-year-old brain got that i was like okay yeah god seems like a cool guy i want to talk to him i want to know him better you know and that was my coming to faith story the first time right and then i think throughout my history in church i think i've been baptized maybe like four times i got i got them all like i'm covered in terms of fire insurance like i'm i'm gonna go to heaven there's no doubt about that in my mind but that being said, what I did not get at my fire insurance was actually like a version of Jesus that is relatable. You know, I I, I totally relate to what you're saying about the Kim Jong-un or ill or whatever his name is version of Jesus where he's unapproachable, unattainable. He's so non-human. But isn't that the point of the, the gospel? The point of the gospel is like, here's a guy who is God in the flesh who literally could turn rocks into bread and is tempted by that in 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 the actual desert by Satan himself. And his response is, well, I am hungry, but you know, I don't really eat this type of bread. And my, you know, the bread that I eat comes from heaven. That's manna, you know, like that. When I, I honestly use that analogy a lot for guys who are struggling in pornography, you know, specifically pornography, because that is such fake bread. It's not good bread. It's doesn't even, it, it, it has all the gluten in it, you know, or <laughs> whatever, whatever the bad stuff is in bread that you're not supposed to eat, as opposed to like Christ bread, you know, it, it truly is a, a wonderful thing. And so to see this guy lay down his life, I mean, he talked about death, his entire gospel. It's like uh, every parable, you can make an argument that like, yeah, it's about dying to yourself. It's about dying for other people. It's about sacrifice. And then he got tired of talking. I was like, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to die. And then he went and did it, you know? That is the gospel in and of itself to where it's like, stop talking about it and do it. And I think that's where we find ourselves in our, our I mean, country today, not just in Mississippi or wherever. Like, we find a, a, a version of a man that's hollow, you know, and we, we see that in the church often with hollow leaders who disappoint us or lead us astray. And I think that's the charge that we have in making disciples you know, of like, hey, we, we kind of have to build up men. And I, I that's why I think you can't do it alone. You can't be, how do you encourage yourself alone? Like one of my favorite heroes in all of history that I, I read him almost every other day th- these days 
is Marcus Aurelius Antonius. He's my favorite character in all of ancient Rome. He's my favorite. I mean, I loved the portrayal of him in Gladiator, this wise, virtuous person with a son who was just horrific. Um, sadly, that movie just didn't do it justice. You know, like he, I think the real version of Commodus was pretty awful oh, yeah, compared was, to the movie. He was way crazier. <laughs> way crazier. Uh, but Marcus Aurelius is a guy who is, he's in charge of everything. Right, he's literally the most powerful person in all of Rome, in all the world at the time. And he wakes up every morning doubting himself. You know, he wakes up depressed. He wakes up in this version of himself that he doesn't necessarily like. And he writes, you you learn this through if you read meditations. He he talks about, you know, seeing life as this thing that is challenging you and trying to grow you. And I like he tried to do that all himself, you know, and, and it's a worthy effort. But I think that's the the joy in Christianity and the joy of Christ is grace. You know, we, we as men can be so hard on ourselves and be so, as you say, eight. We get that version of Jesus where it's like, you jerk, uh, you know. But that's the the true change in life comes from grace and kindness and forgiveness. And so I, you, you have to go find that out from other people. You can't just think on that as like this theological systematic approach to your own belief system. Then you're just kind of in that echo chamber that tells you, eh, you know, you, yeah, you're right. You should never doubt yourself, which I think is the detriment to growth. <laughs> I think that's the opposite of growth. We call that regression <laughs> or keeping you stuck. One, one of the, t- one of the two. Listeners, if you want the the bigger version of this, the family version, get signed up for Eva Tennessee. Uh, I don't know how many spots are left, but we'll make sure this episode goes up before that. Uh, even if we have to shuffle some stuff around. Uh, we, you'll, you'll get the whole hunter clan, uh, <laughs> philosophy of life and recovery. Uh, right. we'd love to hear from you. We're just going to wrap this up now. So if you've got questions, comments, send it to us at pirate monk podcast at gmail.com. If you have thoughts or questions about Samson manor and want to be a part of helping get that rolling, write to us at Samson manor at gmail.com. Again, no P in Samson. Uh, And we are going to have a day or two after the Eva Tennessee retreat at the house. So if you want to stay another couple days with guys and do a couple projects at the house, write to us and we'll make sure we got enough food for you at the manor. It'll be fun. Sleep in sleeping bags. Be awesome. And I believe that wraps us up because Rose got meetings to get to. So until next week, I'm Aaron. I'm Justin. And I'm Ro. <laughs> we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs> <laughs>